Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram and I just want to let you guys know in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch, that's C-O-K-E and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening little roadmap for today's episode. I have kind of a longer introduction because it contains kind of a disclaimer about the episode today. Then we will get into that interview with Dr. Tina Sellers. And after the interview with her, I'll be answering a patron question. This week, it's from Tim. The question is, what is the gospel to you and how do you, quote, evangelize? I am really excited to be answering that question. I am not excited to have a cold today, which you can maybe hear in my voice, but that's fine. I will make it through. 
Uh, and again, that, that patron question gets answered at the end of the episode, something I've been doing recently and really enjoying. Now, to that long intro, as promised, purity culture and premarital sex are not topics I've thought about a ton in the past 10 years, and that's probably because I've been with my wife for about 12 years at this point. I do, however, have plenty of single friends who think about this stuff regularly and who have to deal with it on a daily basis, and I have married and single friends who had pretty rough experiences with Christian purity culture both growing up and now as adults. And so it's something I've wanted to dive into more, and I'm excited for this chat with Dr. Tina Sellers. Some of you will hear this conversation and let out a collective hallelujah. Others will recoil at some of her claims and opinions. I found myself about 50% in the first camp, hallelujah, 25% in the second, oof, I don't know about that, and then another 25% wondering if there might be a better explanation or some kind of middle position. But I think we should pay attention to our own feelings and reactions as we listen to this. Why am I shouting for joy and pumping my fist in the air? Or why do I recoil when she approves of premarital sex, for instance, or says that some sex work can be healthy? After listening back to what you're about to hear, I think that Dr. Sellers, understandably, is probably weakest in the area of theological reflection on all of this. She's not a theologian or a biblical scholar. She's a psychologist and a sex therapist. So I'm, of course, happy to cut her some slack there. And she's also a crusader. She's an activist. She is a true believer in her cause. And in some ways, I am always skeptical of true believers and activists. Um, and in terms of her overall moral intuitions, she is definitely a modern Western progressive who values autonomy over custom. So some of you with more conservative moral leanings will not find all of her arguments persuasive. And that's okay. I didn't find all of her arguments persuasive either. We don't all have to agree all the time. That being said, so much of what Tina says either seems to me obviously true, uh, even as I heard it for the first time, or is stuff that I've been, you know, it's been kicking around in the background, not necessarily consciously, and her language has helped me put it into focus in my own mind. There is a lot of stuff here to consider and look into further. I even feel like there was plenty in this conversation for my own marriage, stuff that I want to talk about and work on with my wife. Um, I got a ton of interesting questions from patrons via the You Have Permission Facebook group, and Tina spent like 30 or 40 minutes at the end answering as many of those as she could. One note that I wish I didn't have to include but is probably helpful for the skeptics on the more conservative end. And this might be TMI, but my wife and I did save ourselves from marriage, as the phrase goes. So this episode is not some attempt for me to expunge my own guilt at having failed purity culture. My concerns with the purity culture movement persist, despite having pretty much stuck to the program. This is a common critique, I think, of any deviation from conservative strict sexual mores, mores, uh, that it's primarily an excuse to, quote, do what we want to do sexually and not have to feel guilty about it. And that might be true in some cases, but it's not true in this case. So please take her arguments on their own merits. Finally, it's worth remembering that the particular claims of purity culture are not synonymous with the Bible. They're not synonymous with 
Orthodox Trinitarian Christian doctrine. Purity culture is a particular understanding of sexuality that became very popular at a particular place and time, the place and time in which I and most of my friends happen to have been raised. But as we will hear, it is nowhere near the only understanding of sexuality throughout church history. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's get into it with Dr. Tina Sellers. Dr. Tina Sellers, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I feel like I should give the setting here because it's worth noting. (laughs) We're in your home office. Yes. Behind you is like a piece of art that is like a molded mesh wiring of like uh, a naked woman. Yes. Mesh art. Mesh art. Um, Definitely see those nipples there. And then there's another (laughs) like an art print. Right. Of a naked woman underwater from the yeah. side. Uh-huh. I've got like some kind of a fertility wood wood carving down here. Yeah. So that's just funny because like immediately I'm like, okay, we're not dealing with the normal. <laughs> You're Chris- in the office of a sex therapist. <laughs> yeah. And, and just also not the normal sort of evangelical way of thinking about sex. Right. Or looking at thinking about nudity or, you know, any of that stuff. And so I just feel like I should say that. Oh yeah, sex therapist. There are the toys. It's the, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it is. It's like the shelf, a shelf of a sex shop, right there, with the descriptions and uh-huh. the yep. uh, the materials. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm going to do my best to uh, not be a repressed evangelical male <laughs> and really kind of okay. dive into this conversation, and we'll see how well I can do. All righty. How would you describe your own faith background? I like to. Even before I talk about my faith background to say that I grew up in a Swedish immigrant home. Okay. And um, I had two great aunts who had this quiet, solid faith. The way they practiced their faith um, was from, as they believed it, the, the origins of Acts. You mean the book of Acts? The book of Acts, yeah. yeah. And and there was a part of a whole, you know, group, national group of people, and there was a national convention and all of that. But they weren't super evangelical, but they were the most loving and amazing people and really lived out their faith. As is the case with many, I think, European families, we talked about sexuality. It was a very open conversation and so, and woven into everything. So... I learned about sexuality and bodies and gender really as I learned about everything else, Mm. you know, like it came up at mealtime and it came up when you were driving somewhere. I mean, it just came up all the time. It's hard for me to imagine something more different than my childhood. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of types of things in your childhood. There's yes. How loud was it? How much trips did you take? Talking regularly about body parts is about as far as I can get from <laughs> my experience. Yeah. And I think probably most people listening. Right. It's true. It's true. You know, I ask people about this all the time. And I would say anywhere from seven to maybe 10% of people have a childhood like mine. And 
you don't even know that it's a different childhood because it's just so normalized. You know, you could be making cookies with your grandmother or your aunt or uncle or whatever, and it just it comes up in just normal conversation. And, and it's not just between you and them, but you can hear it happening between other people as well. Yes. Um, One thing I talk about on this show, you know, it's called You Have Permission. Sometimes that permission is explicit. Yeah. Someone is saying you can believe this or do right. this. But so much of permission structures are implicit as yes, well. Yes, exactly. And you just pick up on it. Family rules are implicit. Right. Norms are implicit. Yes. And that really shapes us as much or more than whatever people specifically tell us we can or can't do or think. That's absolutely true. And the same goes for how bodies were thought of and how mm. bodies were demonstrated. So like my grandmother wore a bikini my whole life. When I was about 13, 14, I was a figure skater and I got involved with a, a bunch of kids at the rink that I was skating at. And many of them were involved at Calvary Chapel, which was one of these huge churches down there that had rock concerts. And yeah. I always say this was the middle of the Jesus movement, mm-hmm. Yeah, which when I describe that to like my students who grew up in the purity movement, I always say the Jesus movement was about as far different from the purity movement as you can imagine. It was like sex, God, rock and roll, and I love Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because it it mirrored kind of the hippies, you right. know? It was... Not like, drugs. <laughs> not... They, they, they took the drugs out, they basically. They took the drugs out, and in some ways, they kind of took you know, love the one you're with. They took the sex out too, but it very much was love each other, take care of each other, not legalistic at all. And if people were sexual, people were out of each other's business and you just made sure that you were loving and caring for each other. And if you are in any kind of trouble, we're here to take care of you because Jesus loves you. Yeah, I think one of the, like the most interesting sort of anthropological studies of the last few generations is how the kind of Jesus hippie generation was so effectively converted by basically Southern conservative Christianity. And by the time my generation is in college, all so many of my parents, friends, my parents, like my friends' parents, they grew up in that. But by the time we were all in college, they own 2,500 square foot houses. You know, they voted Reagan, Bush, and and it was like uh, something happened with that generation. Right, exactly. And and I'm one of those that didn't get very converted. <laughs> yeah. You know, Brian McLaren is a friend of mine, and he tells a similar story of feeling like your faith got hijacked a little bit mm. in the 80s. And when it started to become really legalistic and sort of privileging more of those who are about power and control... It just felt like, no, no, this isn't my Jesus. But I very much continued to stay a part of the church. I just started to speak out about where it didn't feel like the Jesus that I loved. So I have this question of how does one end up working in in the field of sex and spirituality? But you've already sort of answered it. You grew up around a lot of comfort with that. Mm -hmm. But what are the more of the particulars for how you ended up? In yes. This field. Yeah. 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 You're you're right on the right track. I first started out as a junior high and high school teacher and I was teaching science and Latin and other things. I was at a private school and in teaching science, sexuality was part of it. And I loved that. 
I mean, I just loved being able to give the kids a safe place to answer their questions or to ask questions and to be able to explore the actual answers, to give real hardcore knowledge that respected their questions. And um, so I did that then for several years. And then when I began to notice that what interrupted their ability to learn was so much of what was happening at home for them, the stress that they were under at home, you know, a, a kid would come in and say, we're going to family rehab because my brother is, you know, using drugs, but nobody is talking about how my mom is drinking too much. No one's talking right. about that. And I'm like, well, baby, no wonder it's you're having a hard time learning science. You're so worried about your family. Yeah. And people aren't telling the truth. So realizing how much family was affecting kids, I ended up deciding to go back to grad school to study family therapy. I ended up teaching right away in the same program that I graduated from um, at Seattle Pacific. There is a requirement in the state of Washington to take a human a graduate level human sexuality class. And we had somebody teaching it. And he asked if I would, knowing that I had learned that I had taught it at the junior high level. And he said, you know, this class would be so much better if we could teach it together because then we would have a male and a female perspective. And I said, Oh, I would love to do that with you. And so we taught that together for a couple years and then he left and then I continued to teach it in part because none of the other faculty wanted to. Well, sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And like you say, I was really comfortable with it. I loved that was my favorite course. It's funny, your story of going into psychology is almost exactly my dad's story of that. He started out doing like college ministry. Then he's like, these people are getting messed up younger. He went to junior high. He's like, these people are getting messed up younger. He's eventually like, I got to work with the families themselves. Right. That's exactly how he tells that story. You bet. So that's really funny. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's transition to purity culture. What is purity culture for the uninitiated? What, what I'll refer to as the empire church, the organized church, if you will, mm-hmm. what I learned in doing research to try to understand the organized church, because like I had one experience, right, which was very different than what I was beginning to learn from my students. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned Just, earlier there was a generational gap. You have these students being raised in something that is literally descended from the church movement you were raised in, but it doesn't look the same anymore. No, exactly. So that's what was confusing. Because my wife was raised Calvary Chapel. For instance, I had my best friend in elementary school was Calvary Chapel, but it wasn't the same Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel. Exactly. So this is, this is what happened for me. So I began teaching that human sexuality class in 1992. And one of the, one of the assignments that I had my students do is to write their sexual autobiography. And I would give them, it was like 60, 70 questions that walked them through three generations of thinking. So how was affection um, expressed in your family? Um, how was gender expressed? And then through their childhood, through their adolescence, through their adulthood, and just to prompt them in thinking about these things. And 
And I always say, you know, most people are like, ah, I can't imagine doing that. But you want your therapist to know where they begin and end and you begin and end, right, as a client, which means they need to get into their story. Well, if we live in a culture that's primarily silent or silent and shaming around sexuality, then you're not going to know your story. So you need to be prompted to put it into a narrative, Right. I began reading these in 1992 and kids are describing really normalized experiences. You know, our brain develops the same rate it always has. So we have particular curiosities at five. Like, what does yours look like? Here's what mine looks like, right? right? At 10, 11, 12, we have particular curiosities. So those curiosities express themselves. The thing is, is that do we get, quote unquote, caught by someone? And does that someone lose their, you know what, on us? You mean lose their shit? Yeah. We can swear on this podcast. Okay. Yeah, don't worry about it. And if they do, or when they do, we get filled with shame, because we're doing something that's very natural and from our place of curiosity and we don't understand why they're losing their shit all over us. Mm. And so the only meaning we can make is I must be bad. Now, when we're doing this at five, that's not the first time. The first time is when our hand that we have finally realized we have control over, which we're now 12 months old, lands in our crotch mm-hmm. and we go, oh, that feels kind of good. Yeah, right? there's more nerve endings down there. That's exactly yeah. right. And between one and three, we get more control over that hand. But someone does catch us then because they're watching over us and they're slapping our hand away. They're saying, no, that's dirty. Don't touch that. And that happens hundreds of times before that first play with that neighbor or cousin or sibling. That's the one we remember at five. We don't remember the hundreds of times before when we have also gotten in trouble. But very few parents... Uh, do nothing when their child is playing with themselves. Exactly. Especially in public or something. Oh, right. Which it does. It happens in the grocery line. It happens a bajillion times because the kid is... is learning social cues, right. but they don't learn them once. You know, they, sure. it takes a bunch of times before they get that all figured out. So what happened and how I learned about the purity movement was in two, around 2000, I began to notice a significant change in how my students were describing how they felt about themselves when they were describing very normal sexual development. Interesting. There was a huge increase in their ignorance with regard to their development. And in that ignorance, they were describing themselves as perverts, like just Hmm. horrible feelings of disgust and humiliation, feeling just horrible about themselves. And I couldn't figure out what had changed in their lives and in culture that they would be making this meaning about themselves. And then it was affecting how they functioned in their dating life or in their relationships to the point that that their symptoms were looking exactly like somebody who had suffered childhood sexual abuse, even though most of them hadn't been touched inappropriately, but they felt like damaged goods 
many of them had either erectile dysfunction or they had what we call pelvic pelvic dysfunction, uh, vaginismus or something like that, where they couldn't be penetrated or couldn't use a tampon or something because they had just, their body had inadvertently locked down. These are just college students that you're teaching? These are grad students, right? Grad students. Okay. And Mm -hmm. this is not all of them. No, no, no. But but you, you start to find these people who, some of them have similar symptoms of people with legit sexual abuse, Yes, but had none. But just had grown up in these sort of rigid right. kind of anti-sex yeah. yeah. And if you think about it, their sexual development had been traumatized mm. because as they would naturally move into this curiosity, somebody was saying, this is awful. And then as they got into their early adolescence, like 10, 11, 12, they were starting to go into youth group experiences and somebody would pass around a flower and pluck all the things off of all the petals off of it and then stand there and say, this, this is what you'll be. You'll be. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to some of those. (laughs) Yeah. But they would metabolize. Right. This is who they are. So the more earnest the child was, and more anxious the child was, they actually believed that. So this might just be coming from, you know, my own limited perspective in history. But I think I would have assumed and might still assume today that even without sort of a purity culture of a kind of a heavy handedness around sexuality, if I had been 11 or 12 or 13 and I was masturbating and my dad walked in, everybody everywhere would feel weird about that and be ashamed or or turn away or feel like they're getting caught. I mean, so what's the, what's the difference or what's the distance between, well, of course a 12 year old kid is going to feel weird when their mom walks in to like, what makes it purity culture and not just that's a normal human response. If there's been conversations about your body along the way, there's going to be some sense of intrusion. Like you didn't knock mom when you walked in. I see. You know, and there can certainly be conversations that are your body's changing and you're going to wake up and your shoots are going to be wet and da 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 da. And I'm going to start respecting before I walk in. Yeah. And, and then it's because like, you're of that age now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah and right. so there's a little bit of embarrassment, but it's also like, you know, mom or dad. Knock. As opposed to sheer terror. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then there is, you know, a, a myriad of messages about don't, 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 don't. This is unpure. You're not saving yourself. You're violating your relationship with God, with your future partner. And if you are, you're perverted in some way, right? You're impure in some way. You're impure, not just in your actions, but you're impure in your thoughts and you're impure in your desires. And you can stop that. That's hmm. the message that they're given. The reality is you can't, you can stop behaviors, but you but can't you, stop desires. Yeah. You can't stop desires. That's like stop breathing. Right. And you know, people don't know because we don't teach child development that or child sexual development that between 13 and 15, boys get 20 times the amount of testosterone dumped in their bodies. They go yeah. from a bicycle to a rocket ship, yeah. you know, and we don't tell them this. So, so to suggest to them that they can stop their thoughts and desires. No. So what are the specific claims? Like, let's catalog the claims of mainstream purity culture. Uh, I know I'm going to recognize all these claims because I grew up in this, but like just what is that movement actually saying 
that another version, another vision of sexuality would not say. Basically, you can remain pure in body, in mind and heart until the day of biblical marriage. Right. Right. And that wasn't defined much more clearly than that. So then it was expanded in the minds to be, that must mean everything. Yeah, right. And so then I can take anything that I do or think or feel. And if I'm particularly anxious, then I must be blowing it everywhere. Well, it's like, so I'm looking at these two, you know, busts of naked women behind you. And my first thought earlier was like, well, if you're seeing a couple, like, isn't the husband going to come in and like lust after this woman? Like, I am wired this way. Sure, exactly. I have to be, I have to consciously go, huh, I bet she's got some better reason. (laughs) I bet she's got some reason for having that there. And I can maybe ask her or not or whatever. But you know what I mean? Like that's, it. it is so hardwired now. Yes, yes, exactly. And when you've grown up with the idea that seeing a body, seeing a naked body means lust, and that's a bad thing, that's going to take you down a bad path, then you're immediately looking at things going, "Uh uh-oh, right? As opposed Mm. to God created these amazing bodies and bodies and desire is a good thing. And we can always exercise self-control. That is always within our power. It's, it's really, if you think about it, the logical, uh, this might be overstepping, but the logical extension of purity philosophy is burkas is head to toe covering of women in public because why stop at a miniskirt? Jeans, yoga pants, like what, you know, just like if that's what a woman's body is, cover that shit up. Yeah. And then it, then it objectifies every single woman. She is not allowed to be because she's immediately a sex object. That's immediately what she's, and it also is disrespectful in my book to every single man that says, you don't have the capacity Mm. to have self-discipline. You don't right. have the, you are that much of an animal. Bullshit. Yeah. That's not the way I raised my boys and they know and knew since the time they were little that you are responsible for everything you say and everything you do. Yeah. You're not any different than your sisters. Hmm. In fact, you have a responsibility to be protective of everybody who has less power than you. My body bangs and Yes, you're right. This is not the normal transition music for the You Have Permission podcast. This is a song called In Stitches by the artist David Bazan. And I'm trying something new with this latest patron-only episode. If you guys like it, then I'll do more of these. Different tracks, different guests. But basically, I want to talk through some tracks from David Bazan's 2012 album, Curse Your Branches. And this week, I did that with my friend Bruce Freebie. Now, if you don't know who David Bazan is, he's the founder of the band Pedro the Lion, and he was one of the most influential voices in Christian independent music for about 15 years. In 2012, he officially and publicly left Christianity. This was kind of his breakup album with God, so to speak. 
In my own circles, this was a pretty big deal, something I've talked about a hundred times or more with friends over the years. And I wanted to go back through that record track by track, looking at lyrics and talking through the experience of that album coming out, also how it looks to us now seven years later. So, the first of these is live now for patrons, and it's about the final track, In Stitches, which we're listening to now. And it has a line in it, the crew have killed the captain, but they still can hear his voice. So, to hear this episode, you got to become a patron if you aren't one already. You can do that at patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com click become a patron and uh, you get of course all the other stuff two of these bonus episodes per month access to the facebook group which includes the listener questions that i generally answer at the end of questions uh, end of episodes that is so all right enough about the ad hope you guys will like this patron episode and let me know if you do because that means i get to do more of these david bazan episodes all right back to the episode question you responded who are you to challenge your creation in a few minutes tina will give a definition for sexual shame it's kind of long but it is written out in the show notes if you want to read along once you get to that section of the interview or you might just also back up and listen to her say it one or more times again if that's helpful okay Back to my chat with Tina. So I have people walk up to me when I go out and I'm speaking and they'll be like, well, what about lust? You know, like I isn't I'm not supposed to lust after anybody and anything. And what about? And, yeah, I mean, yeah. so well, then what, let's let's do one of those. So the one that comes to mind is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Famously, he talks about um, divorce and sexual desire and stuff. And he talks about adultery, he says, you know, in the past, you've heard it said, do not sleep with another man's wife. But I tell you, if you've thought about having sex, if you thought about sleeping with her, you have committed adultery, adultery of the heart, basically. And what Jesus is doing there is he's he's making a moral distinction. It's not simply the actions that are sinful, but it's actually all the way into our, not necessarily our desires, but our mental actions, you might say. Actions that don't have a discernible effect upon the outside world, but that nonetheless decisions, willful willful decisions that we make inside. You know, it's not what comes what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out. It's all part of this kind of moral reshaping that Jesus does in his ethical ministry. What do you do with something like that? Our responsibility is to look at the bigger picture and to look up, look at how we are using power and control. I think so often in Jesus' ministry, he was looking at who's being slippery here. Who's trying to get away with something here that's not taking responsibility for how they are abusing power and control? Well, that certainly seems to be what he's doing with divorce. When he said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. And I'm saying, don't do that, basically. Divorce is not permitted. He's not necessarily talking to battered women. Right. He's talking to men. He's saying, first of all, Moses did not permit the women to divorce their husbands. So he's not talking to women. He's talking to men and, and they are being, yeah, he's talking to slippery men. Yes. So that's a good way of saying yes, that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think anytime we take, we, we decide to cherry pick a verse, 
When we decide what it means, it needs to be absolutely consistent with the whole of Jesus' ministry. Because if it isn't, then we're missing Hmm. the meaning of that verse. Because I think Jesus' ministry is incredibly consistent. Huh. How would you describe it? The core of his ministry? I think it's about love and justice and caring for the underprivileged. And what we see consistent in the empire religions of the world is that they're about power and control and privileging those in power. So it strikes me that purity culture existing is one thing. And purity culture becoming the zeitgeist of American religion for 30 years is another thing. And as I try and think about how that succeeded, how that became so big, isn't part of it that it was just like the convenient way for parents to like hope that their kids don't get pregnant as teenagers or something like that, keep them out of trouble? Isn't there, there is a part of it from the parents that's understandable. Well, I think parents are always trying to protect their kids. So I do think that when the church says, do this because this is protective to your children, people trust the church. The church has an enormous amount of power. Church is responsible for that power. That's where I think the church has been incredibly manipulative. The church doesn't know, maybe the church doesn't even care about how it's misusing that power church hasn't gone in and studied sexuality at all, nor has it cared to study sexuality. I do think that parents were using what the church was seeing to be protective of their kids and used it in good faith. I don't think that's ever been different. I think, Mm, I think people have trusted the church all along in many places. I, I just feel like what happened in 1979 the issue that that was on the table was segregation. You know, we, the church, was no longer, we could no longer segregate in our Christian colleges anymore. The government said no more. You cannot do it anymore. You're talking about the beginning of the religious right. Yes. Yeah. And when we could no longer do that, there was... Specifically Bob Jones University. That's exactly right. And when we could not do that anymore, there was a huge rally cry. So what issue are we going to take up? Right? And the issue that was decided by Paul Weirich and Jerry Falwell involved was abortion. And they rallied all the evangelicals and the religious right together. And that was what happened, you know? Abortion ended up being a lot more successful of an issue for them. That's right. Than uh, interracial relationships for obvious reasons. But what was happening behind the scenes and and a book I always recommend people read, because this was the book that explained the development of the purity culture for me when I said, well, wait a minute, I had this experience with the Jesus movement. How did we get to this place where my students were so hurt? I read Frank Schaefer's book, Sex, Mom, and God. And and Frank was there in the middle of it with his yeah, father, Francis Schaefer. And that book, he names names, names meetings, explains the entire thing. I mean, I'm surprised the man is still alive, honestly. <laughs> and that helped me understand because what was really behind it was consumerism. Hmm. And they just shaped a story that would 
rally the people behind them. Because in 1980, we had an economic downturn. We had a reaction to second wave feminism. And then by the mid 80s, early to mid 80s, we had HIV. And so the right. public was vulnerable. It was scared. And whenever you see that, it could be plagues, it could be whatever. Sociopolitical movements shape the empire church, and it always has. And this was our last movement that shaped our empire church to turn into a very turn toward a very conservative um, way of being. And that's what happened. That's how we got the purity movement. We spoke on the phone uh, a few weeks ago to kind of talk through what we wanted to talk about. And you mentioned something really interesting. You mentioned that the messaging of purity culture gets through, for, for people raised in it, gets through and absorbed and internalized yes. before the hormones hit. Yes. And that, that you think there's something really crucial about that timing. What, what's yes. going on there? Well, I think when developmentally, when you are... 8 to 12, you're in what we call the latency age. You're still looking to your family to be your primary providers of information. And so if your family says the church is important, you're looking to please your family still. You want that affirmation and you want to be pleasing these people that you're highly attached to. Then once you start to hit adolescence, you begin to look outside your family for belonging, for attachment. And that then continues to grow from 13 to 19 or so. And you start taking in data from school, from your peer group as you individuate. So when we start teaching this stuff at that latency age, these kids are still very much in a place where this must be true. Right. And they're really absorbing it. You pretty much, you're not really actively questioning information you are given by your kin That's from right. 8 to 12. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I had a PhD student do research on sexual shame a few years ago because we didn't have an operational definition yet of sexual shame. When the definition was determined out of her interviews, the the definition was so stunning to me, even though I had been seeing it for years in the lives of people, I think something about seeing it in black and white helped me realize that I don't believe there is any other way we could be hurting people more mm. because we are hurting them at their core ability to attach Right. as well as in their identity. So how they actually think about themselves and their value. So we're affecting their ability to give and receive love and how they actually think about their worthiness. So how you would be able to receive God's love, we're affecting that. So they can't really attach well. Everything is behind a mask. Right. And I can't think of how we could be hurting people more. And I think that's part of why I've become such a zealot about us doing this differently. Should we read that definition? Sure. It's, yeah. it's sitting there right in front of you. It is. Sexual shame is a visceral feeling of humiliation and disgust toward one's own body and identity as a sexual being and a belief of being abnormal, inferior 
and unworthy. This feeling can be internalized, but also manifests in interpersonal relationships, having a negative impact on trust, communication, and physical and emotional intimacy. Sexual shame develops across the lifespan in interactions with interpersonal relationships, one's culture and society, and subsequent critical self-appraisal. So what that means is it first happens between, let's say, a child or even an infant and then an other, an important other. And then it comes back to make the child feel like, oh, there must be something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Then it happens again between the child and other and then gets this inner critic going and it just keeps happening in this feedback loop. Then it goes on to say, there is also a fear and uncertainty related to one's power or right to make decisions, including safety decisions related to sexual encounters, along with an internalized judgment toward one's own sexual desire. So what that I think is saying is, and we know this from Peggy Ornstein's research, who wrote the book girls and sex navigating the the new landscape. And that came out in 2017 is that girls can feel powerful in every area of their life until they get ready to go out. And then Mm. they're putting down two, three and four shots of hard liquor because they don't know that they can keep themselves safe or they have the right to keep themselves safe. And this is, this is what rape culture is telling us, right? Is that it feels so unsafe out there for girls And they don't know that they have the right to keep themselves safe, Mm. that they can speak up. So this isn't just for Christian kids. This is for all kids. Yeah. It does make me think, though, specifically in the Christian context of the complications that come when churches sort of unanimously get excited about the 35-year-old youth pastor dating the 19 year old you know college freshman or whatever because like they're gonna do it the right way and get married and and like the the purity of that relationship style ignores the 16 year age gap and development gap and uh, ignores the fact that the 19 year old's prefrontal cortex is not fully connected for another six years to the right. rest of her brain. And, and so she can't even forecast her future fully yet. And it can get quite insidious. You have the power differential right. there between a youth leader and a early college woman. Good Lord. One of the, one of the women who works with Dan Allender at Seattle school uh, and does uh, spiritual abuse stuff. That was uh, part of her story is that she had this, when she was 16, she dated like the 20 something youth guy for years. And like everybody in her church approved of it. And I just was like 16. But so that comes from the religious imagination of that group, right? It doesn't, it's not coming from their social anthropology or their theory of bio psychic development. I mean, that's not where it's coming from. That overlap can be really scary. Yes. And you can see inside of that the amount of ignorance, of sexual development ignorance that there is in there. What happened in the late 70s is we removed the amount of comprehensive sex education that had been a part of our schools. We had Mm. some. And then we inserted 
quote unquote, abstinence only education. And we started pumping billions of dollars. Yeah. We've now studied that 80% of that education, quote unquote, was medically false. Wow. So we took away what was accurate. We inserted what was frightening and false. So we have corrupted what people could have used to actually really empower them to make decisions that could have been protective to them. So let's let's talk about some of that education. I mean, just specifically more in like the youth group context. You mentioned the you get the daffodil and you start plucking off the um, the petals. My, my favorite kind of to laugh at was uh, in <laughs> this rogue Bible teacher in eighth grade. And I, I saw this done more than once. So I had seen it in youth group where you take the two pieces of paper, the, the blue and the pink, and you and you put the glue and then you blue let it and sit. Pink. And then, yeah, and then you, uh, re, re, you know, you, it sticks to each other and you see this is what is happening to your soul when you have sex. And they would maybe cite like oxytocin or whatever kind of, not oxytocin, that's just... No, no, that's, that's a bonding Yeah, chemical. bonding chemicals, yeah, which is true. But uh, this guy was like, we were eighth grade. It was all boys, but he was like, does anybody want to come up with a... Uh, what the glue represents. And some kid was like, um, semen. And the guy was like, I was going to say come, but semen works too. That dude didn't last very long. He was weird. He told us the story (laughs) of his wife. He told us the story of his wife catching him masturbating. He was like in his fifties. I would like to say that he was an example of purity culture gone awry. That's just my funny memory of it. But like, let's talk about those. What's inaccurate in those type of demonstrations, which I'm sure so many of us, saw. Yeah. Well, one, it says that you're damaged, right? Nothing separates you from the love of God. Interesting. (laughs) So immediately you are told that should, should you make any decision that you later wish you didn't make? Right. And that's, that's just, and I'm not saying that if you do have any sexual experience prior to getting married that you need to regret it, but should you, that somehow God withdraws his, her love from you. It's so weird. We don't do that with drugs and alcohol. If no. someone's testimony is, I was a big drinker and now I'm sober, we're like, yay. Yay, you're sober. But there is something different about right. sexuality. Something's been tainted. Right. We don't leave room for the the... Um, young adult to say, I had an incredibly loving relationship when I was in high school or when I was in college. And that set the stage that raised the bar for me. It didn't, it didn't last, but it really helped me know so much about what kind of person works for me. Hmm. And I'm so grateful for that relationship. And I know even more what I want. And I could have had my first relationship could have been a horrible one, but it was a really good one. And it's even different than the ones that my parents had. It's better than the one that I watched my parents have. We don't have a place for that. We don't have a place for that story. Interesting. You know, we just have one kind of thing. You can't. And if you do, it's always going to ruin you. No, people have many different kinds of stories. I started a community website called thankgodforsex.org. And this was years ago. And it was modeled after Dan Savage and Terry Miller's um, website. It gets better. So that there was a place for 
young adults to tell their story of healing from purity culture and getting to a place where they could thank God for sex. And there's all kinds of stories on there, you know, because people weren't talking and they were feeling afraid to talk because they were afraid of being judged. I had this question that I I kept off because I couldn't figure out where to put it, but now this seems like a good place to put it. As I I was texting and talking with a couple people about doing this interview with you, and like every time I would do that, I would like feel that I would get the urge to like put an eggplant plant emoji or like make some sex joke. Like, what is it about the way that the I was raised that makes me have to make a joke out of all of it? Like, you know, like there's something there of like the only way I'm comfortable really setting this up and telling my friends about it is like, yeah, if I make a boner joke about it or something, what's going on there? What do you think is going on there? <laughs> <laughs> Don't try and psychoanalyze me. I'm um, not. I'm no. asking you to do it to yourself. <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I, I think it's a, I would say it's a discomfort. It's a discomfort that is visceral. It's not something I'm like thinking about. It's just like I have this reaction and maybe I'm not ready to take it seriously. And part of that might be that like, you know, my needs have mostly been met my whole life and like purity culture is harder probably for women than for men i would guess because we're basically told like you're an animal uh once you find that hot pastor's wife or or your whatever your version of the pastor's hot wife is you go to town young boy and you you know and all that sanction and until then we know that you're like a bull who's ready to be released into the rodeo and you're we, that the gates are just shut. And, and, and so you're banging against them, banging up against the gates and like, you know, don't get out into the corral yet, but once you can, then go to town. And, you know, just, I think that that's not the experience of women. I've talked to you of, of their experience with purity culture where they're kind of, so why don't you speak to what's, what's the opposite experience of, of what I just described? Well, you're going to town, quote unquote, is, Women, a woman is, is your object who you get to do as yeah. often as you want on your time. And maybe, okay. I probably didn't expect that it would be quite that way, but it's some 60, 70% version of that. Yes. Is yes. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. And so male entitlement is high. Yeah. I waited all this time. That means I get it. Mm-hmm. She thinks that. You've waited all this time. You get it. My body belongs to you. Women feel like they can't know their body. They can't experience their sexuality. They can't know pleasure because if they do, they are a whore. If they dress in any way that allows them to experience feeling sexy, Hmm. they are a whore or a Right, a slut. They're they're causing me to stumble they're, early. Oh yeah, because you're you're a bull in a cage rattling against it. Even if I'm married and they're younger than me, they're causing the older married man to stumble too. It there's it never ends. Oh right, because the Bill, Billy Graham rule, right? Yeah, yeah. So she doesn't get to know her own sexuality, her own pleasure, without it causing problems. And yet she's also somehow supposed to be a sex kitten in the bedroom. Right. Right. It's it's this horrible double bind that she is, is always incredible. in. We have set up 
a sexual dynamic where transactional sex is going to happen, which is a guarantee that her sex drive is going to drop to nothing. Because who wants to do something that is an obligation? Absolutely no one. Yeah. Right. And until she gets to have the kind of sex that she wants, until you ask a woman, hey, what kind of sex is worth having for you? And she feels the freedom to even begin to think about it because right. she never has. Right. Because the first thing she says is none. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because she thinks still that the only kind she gets to have is the kind he wants. She's never actually thought about it. And then if she thinks about it, she'll, she'll test it and she'll say, oh, I don't know, sit in the bathtub with a bottle of champagne. And then she'll look at him like, would you really do that with me? You know, and it's so interesting to me because if you start to let a woman know about her own pleasure and her own body and her own sexuality, women are the ones whose sexuality is so much bigger and so much more powerful than men's really. And the thing that turns men on so much more than their own sexuality is watching her go. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't set it up this way. We don't show porn to men that really are about how you turn a woman on. We don't. And we don't help women know about their sexuality. And so men come in entitled. They come in thinking it's all about them. And that makes them terrible lovers. And we make women think it's all about men, which make women not in a good place. Actually, women need to be completely selfish and men need to make it all about her. And we go the absolute opposite direction. Mm. And so like when we were talking earlier about the retreat that we do, we turn it all on its head. And then I've had men say to me, if I had any idea, and this is after an an afternoon where we make it all about the women and not about the men at all. Men will say to me, if I had any idea that making love could look like that, and that's when he's gotten nothing and he's made it all about her and she's had it all about her for the very first time in her entire life. Usually he'll say, if I had any idea that making love could look like that porn would have never held a candle for me. Hmm. Interesting. Because he's never been able to watch her bloom ever. We have it so backwards in the United States. It's crazy. Well, let's not drop the mics so that we don't, <laughs> so we don't break them. Do people leave the church unnecessarily because of purity culture? Do people lose their faith unnecessarily? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. People feel all the time that they have to choose between their sexuality and their spirituality, both LGBTQ, I plus people and straight people all the time. Um, if, if I can't have a, a dynamic, good, loving sexual relationship in my life the way that I believe it should be and my faith. If it comes down to that, I will choose a loving sexual relationship every time. And, um, and that's what people have felt so often. Do you think that's kind of a proof in the pudding sort of a thing? Like just in their experience, they go, well, this other thing must be false. If it says that this thing that has proven itself to be helpful and life giving, you know, or is it something like that? Yeah, I do. I think 
Or I think that they'll say um, they'll have a loving sexual relationship and they will find God there. And they'll say the church has been full of shit for always. And they'll they'll lump the baby in with the bathwater and they'll yeah, just throw right. the entire thing away. Right. And I think that's what's really happened in the ex evangelical movement is so many people have just thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And that, that I think for me is the saddest thing because I just, I do think that the empire church has gotten it wrong. I mean, I have proof that they've gotten it wrong, but I, when I went back and asked the question, has the church always gotten it wrong and went back into the Hebrew mystic writing, there's just relentless story after relentless story about how God really wants us to know our belovedness through our sexuality. And that is the central place of healing. And we just never brought all that stuff forward. Isn't that related to patriarchy? Because as I understand patriarchal systems, which operated with impunity in the biblical time and to maybe a lesser, but still some degree today, you know, women are property. I mean, the Ten Commandments, women are property. In the Torah, if a... we I went over some of this with Carolyn Custis James a month or two ago, but, you know, if a, if a daughter is raped, she's worth less to the, to the father. And so, like, the rapist has to pay the father restitution monetarily because the daughter was primarily a way to get money and to bind families together. The, the the raped daughter is not consulted whether she would like to marry the rapist. And by the way, the rapist had to marry her. I mean, so that is just such pure, disgusting evil that is assumed. Uh, it's just the world. It's the milieu in which the Bible is written. And um, but if God's calling us to something better, don't we have to take stock of that? And, and how much do we think about this stuff in the context of patriarchy? I don't know what, that's kind of a bad question, but what do you think? Well, I do think that where there is patriarchy, we have power and control. And again, I think that that's a problem and often runs opposite to love and justice, right? And I don't know how these things worked together. I can't speak to that necessarily, but also within Jewish culture, we had stories that, talk about a God that wanted something different, wanted us to know our belovedness. You know, there are first century or yeah, first century rabbis that talk about how the Song of Songs was the most holy book. I was just going to say Song of Songs. Yeah. yeah. Of the whole Torah and that all the rest of the books were supposed to point us back to the Song of Songs. Interesting. The, the vow of Ona, which was one of the things that I found in my research is still taught today in Jewish boys' school, and it is all sex positive. You can run your relationship by it. You can run your dating life by it. You can raise your kids by it. It's very, in my opinion, it's non-patriarchal, even though it's taken by the man at marriage. He's held responsible for it, but it's very feels very feminine in the way that it's asking him to behave. I'm going to, we don't have to read it. I'm going to put this vow of Ona in the show notes. Okay. So that people can look it up and we'll just, they can take our word for it for now that it is. But I want to talk about one of them. Yeah. Pick one. Sex is considered a woman's right and not a man's. Interesting. The husband has a duty, the vow of Ona, to ensure that all forms of sexual touch are pleasurable to her. 
They are to bring her pleasure and joy. He is to study and learn her. Now, this is the vow that he takes when he gets married. Now, from Western perspective, this is countercultural mm-hmm. and counterintuitive, right? So I read this everywhere I go. And of course, there's a sigh across the room or a gasp. And there's the obvious that you think of, but there's something profoundly elegant underneath this that has to do both with how women and men's brains are formed, but also how our culture does things. So women have a larger hippocampus, which means that we have 11% more neurons for how we read faces. So little baby girls tend to study faces about 300 times more than boys do. So it means that we're reading a room and we're reading emotion. It also has to do with our language, how we pick up language. So you have that skill set on top of living in a culture that tells her that she needs to pay attention to relationships. And then what happens is you have women not till midlife realizing it's not about everyone else. It's also about her. And that's about the time that women start saying, no, it's about me too. I want to do something in the world. I'm saying no to people finally for the first time, right? With men, they have a larger amygdala, right? And so men are more about competition. They're about aggression. They're about accomplishment, right? Plus the world shapes it that way too. You yeah. give two boys, two, you give a boy two sticks, he turns them into swords. You give right. a girl, four years old, two sticks, mommy stick, daddy stick, right? Mm. But then you have to wait till midlife for men often to realize that all that hard work he's been doing what makes that worthwhile for him is his relationships. But by then, he's often on his second family. Hmm. So that's what is so powerful about this. Yeah. What you do different than we don't do is you start raising your girls to pay attention to what their voice is, what they want, what they don't want, how to disappoint people, how to pay attention to how they're being treated how to say no, you start to build that skill set of her growing edge right away. And with boys, you get them paying attention to what does what does your sister want? How is she different than you? What about your cousin? How is he different than you? You get them paying attention to other and the importance of other in their life. So now you have half a chance that they will be able to choose an egalitarian relationship hmm. in their late 20s, early 30s, which is a relationship that they'll be much more happy in, right? This vow knew this. And it's thousands of years old. Now, we could have brought this forward. And I think Jesus knew this, right? And we missed it. Mm-hmm. But it's not too late. Nope. We've got it now. So I got so many good questions on the You Have Permission Facebook group from patrons. I want to ask some of these. If we have, I've got more questions for you. We'll get to them if we have time. But there's so many good ones in here. And they, they are so wide. And I just want to give some serious time. So we'll just start. Yeah. First question. Is it even worth trying to have a conversation about sexual behavior in a Christian context? Would we be better off leaving the conversation about sex and sexuality out of the church altogether? Can we still derive value from the way people thought about this 2000 years ago? 
I'm not so arrogant to think we have it all figured out, but it doesn't seem to me that we need Christianity to understand how to respect each other sexually. Very good question. Very good question. No, we don't need Christianity to understand how to respect each other. And I do think that bringing in God's incredible love for us, God's amazing design of our bodies expands our understanding of Mm. sexuality. If we have any doubt that God built us for connection and pleasure, there's just so much evidence right in our bodies. You know, the clitoris has one purpose and he gave it to women. We get to take it with us. When babies are born, they are going after the breast right away. The smell, the touch, all of it. Not because they're hungry. The milk doesn't come down for a couple of days, right? You don't give infants enough touch. They start to suffer neurological damage. You walk down the halls of an Alzheimer's unit. People don't have to have memory and they're still seeking connection and pleasure. We are created this way. So we have evidence after evidence that... Our body, mind, soul, spirit seeks connection and pleasure. So sexuality in the context of understanding God is a great place to teach it. We just need to teach it. We need to provide the knowledge and say, look at this cool stuff. There's great knowledge here. We've just never done it. Yeah, you can can do it without recourse to... Uh, spirituality and religious claims. But if you are in the church already, then it's one simple theological move to go, and and this is how God intended it. And then all of a sudden it opens things up. Yeah, exactly. And I speak on this all the time at churches. So in your, it has shown to work. It has been shown to work. Absolutely. And the research shows that if you have, and this is a, a metaphoric thing to say, but if you have 101 minute conversations with your kids, in other words, if you're talking about it all the time, Kids will get involved with sex later, make safer sexual choices, have more varied and satisfying sex in their adult life. And the best part of the research, as far as I'm concerned, they will describe themselves as closer to their parents overall. Wow. Next question. Why do Christians so unanimously believe that sex before marriage is wrong? Because they've been told that over and over and over and over and over again. It's kind of remarkable, though, when you start to look at the text, you don't really find it in the Bible. Um, Have you done much work as to, like, just historically how that became so prominent of a view? You know, I haven't, but I will tell you, I have read well over 500 sexual autobiographies of people, actual people's lives. And what I have noticed in reading these is what causes emotional pain for people in as far as sex before marriage is, is when they are often under the age of like 14 and when they have had sex with somebody who has been abusive or not loving and it doesn't matter the age and that can be in the context of marriage. Right. People across the globe seem to become sexual somewhere between 16 and 18. That's where the majority of people often have sex and there's some amount of maturity there. And if they're in a loving relationship that is relatively egalitarian, they often don't regret it, even if the relationship doesn't last. There's 20 devil's advocate responses to that, but rather than let's, we'll keep going. Um, Is there a healthy version of purity I help lead our youth group, and I'm always struggling with how to answer the should I wait for sex question. I don't want to give them the same purity culture answer I got. 
but also I want to encourage them to take sex seriously and not flippantly. Right. That's a good question. That's a great question. I like to help kids talk about readiness, right? And so one of the things I do when I'm talking with adolescents is I will pull up YouTube videos of what it looks like to go to college and to go to college parties. Interesting. And I'll say, so here's the kind of sex that's going on at college right now. So and I'm just, I'm not pulling up sex scenes, but I'm pulling up college parties. And, and I'm like, this is hookup culture. This is what's happening. You get super, super drunk. And then you can't remember exactly whose clothes took off and who had sex with who. And it's, it's not very fun sex because you weren't, you were inebriated. Yeah. Right. And then I pull up some beautiful, fairly um, sensual dances Hmm. and that are like in, in dance competitions and we talk about the amount of study that it takes to be this level of a dancer. And I equate that to the kind of the amount that you need to know your own body and be your own kind of dancer before. And then the amount of study you have to do with somebody else before you get to this level of a dancer. And I'll say you are capable of having this level of of sexual connection with somebody. God created you for this, but it takes first getting to know yourself and then being able to communicate and then practice. It takes a whole lot of things, but you are created for this and you have an opportunity to make a choice for what you want in your life. This is what's happening out there. Everyone's going to say it's awesome and it's the best, you can decide for yourself what you're seeing. This is what you're created for. You you can have this too, but it doesn't happen overnight. And the fact that they've seen, like visually experienced it, then we can kind of talk about it. But it's amazing. Nobody's usually giving them a picture of what they can have and how you get that. Um, kids often need a picture of why it's worth waiting for something better. They need a positive account, not just a negative account. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I liked this question. What is up with side hugs? Why does the church think a man can't hug a woman? Why can't men hug each other? (laughs) Side hugs is a particularly funny way of thinking about it, but you, you just imagine after the church service, it's all side hugs with the men. If it's men and women that aren't together. I'm thinking side hugs is just an, another modification of the Billy Graham rule that, you know, men can't be trusted. Men can be trusted if they choose to be trustworthy. Mm. And sometimes hugging each other is a very appropriate thing to do. And you should absolutely always be trustworthy. This person asks, I want to ask about asexuality. Yeah. Being told that you're supposed to get married and have kids and be a good housewife, but you don't fit that mold because of your orientation. I told my Calvinist dad that I'm asexual, and he said, you just haven't met the right man yet. You don't know your future. Knowing that his reading of the Bible and belief on the role of a woman is what causes his invalidation is frustrating. Yeah. Do you have any response to that? Yeah. I would say, you know, sweetie, just 
accept who you are and find people in your life who can hear what you know about you. And um, it's hard to not be seen, known, loved and accepted by people who are a part of your life, who you love. Um, But sometimes our parents can't see us well. And which means we have to build a chosen family of people who can. And it sounds like this person's done their research. So, right. Yeah. Any advice on how to discuss sex education with Christians who still adamantly believe that abstinence only sex ed is the best route? Abstinence sex ed is not sex ed. You're not providing sexual information, accurate sexual information. We would never say to somebody who wants to learn to fly a plane, don't learn anything at all. (laughs) And at 21, I'm going to hand you keys and I'm going to expect you to be safe in the air. That is, it's absolutely ridiculous that we call it education. It is not education. Your body is a phenomenal piece of work that God put incredible time and energy in. We should understand it top to bottom. Then we should understand what intimacy is and how you do conflict and how you do um, affection and how you age over time. And so much goes into how you do relationships well in our complex time. Um, so the fact that we don't invest anything in this is ridiculous to me. Is there any way to separate the positive message of self-worth from the construct of saving yourself for marriage? I think the idea being that some part of saving yourself for marriage is, is self-esteem. It's like you don't need to have sex with that boy just because he wants to, or you don't need to have sex with that girl just because she has daddy issues and wants to. I mean, that that's sort of how it was framed as I was raised. Oh, so there, there's there's a sense in which like I'm better than that, and like you don't get to tell me that I'm not. So is is there some way of salvaging that part of the? Saving yourself for marriage. Yeah, I think you have a choice to not do or do anything you want. If it is your choice, then it's your choice. One of my favorite stories from one of my students was um, she and her husband met in college and they decided not to have intercourse until they got married. It was their choice, not because the church had said. They actually did their research and found out that the church said don't have intercourse before marriage in like the 16th century. So the reason they decided to not have sex before marriage, and they didn't get married for like another three years, was because they knew that intercourse was so central to the heterosexual marriage that they knew it would be organizing to their relationship. So what they wanted to do was learn how to love each other in so many other ways before that. And so that when they took it off the shelf, they were already really, really good lovers. And when she was writing her paper, they had already been married a decade. And she said, I am sure we have a better love life than anybody else our age. When it is your choice, it is self-esteem building. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. In your opinion, is there any healthy, positive sex work? 
i.e. prostitution or yeah, sure. whatever. Yeah, I think any sex work that it is non-exploitive of you or anyone else, I'm not opposed to it at all. And people are adults here and... I, you know, it's, I think it's fine. The, I think where we have a problem is where they're getting power and control into the picture and we have exploitation going on where there are secrecy, there's secrets going on. If there's money involved and there's an employer and an employee, does that not always lead to some kind of a power dynamic? You can imagine cases where there is no coercion. There is no. Yeah. But like, could, are we, could we reasonably expect that we can tell? When that's the case? I don't, not sure from the outside. Someone says, I I would like to be a a stripper. I'm choosing to be a stripper. I know the owner of the strip club. I think I will not have a problem. How long until some incident happens in that strip club? I mean, like, are, are we stupid to have, to assume that that will actually work out well for this person? But isn't that the case with so many jobs? Well, yeah, but, but not, they're mostly not sexually harming. And if you're, if one of the, if one of the things about your work that you're so fiery about is that there's no way we could harm a person worse than sexually harming them and they're choosing sex work, then they are drastically increasing. I write jingles for a living. I'm very unlikely to be sexually harmed writing right, jingles. Right. You know what I mean? But we're now talking about an adult person going in and doing their research on a place and yeah. uh, talking to all the people there and talking about how they're paid and talking about, you know, you know, da, 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 da. And then under what circumstances would a situation occur that they would leave, right? And so they've done their due diligence. That feels different than talking about an 8 to 12-year-old who is in that kind of power differential. Yeah, sure. I suppose, I guess another way, way of asking this question, though, are there any established kinds of sex work where the actual thing provided by the work is a healthy thing? Like, I don't think of strip clubs as like a tremendously healthy place for a guy to be you know what i mean like if i'm going to the strip club to like get some dopamine hit or replace the love my mom never gave me or i'm bored or i'm drunk or whatever like how many like meaningful experiences might i have at a strip club and if that number is very 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 low then how can i imagine that the strippers work life is rich yeah you know what i mean so I think this is a really interesting conversation because um, there is a couple of different ways in which sex work has been, I think, positive that we don't talk about very much as a culture. So, for example, there are sex workers called surrogates. The Sessions, the movie with uh, Helen Hunt. That's exactly right. And so it's legal in California. It's not legal in Washington. And um, there are people that use surrogates who have, it's actually helped them move from being like socially incredibly awkward to being able to go out and date or you know, whatever, or like in that movie, that was an incredible, and that's a true story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there are people here in Washington that will use surrogates, but also will use prostitutes in the same way. There, there is a thing called VR camming. So where someone will put on a a VR, whatever that 
woman who's in the room, she's in 100% in charge of what happens. She's protected. She determines what she does and doesn't do. Vice had a program on this. And um, one of the guys that they interviewed, he said, you know, I am a single dad of two kids. I do not have the time to be dating right now. There's a couple of girls that I'm quote unquote talking to. And right now this is working for me. So they're not like deep relationships or anything, but these girls are great and nice. And it gives me this little outlet. And right now this is, this is what I want in my life. And I listened Mm -hmm. to that and I thought, you know, he has every right to make this decision for himself. You know, as somebody who was a single parent for nine years, I kind of get it for that person may not be anything I would have done, but I kind of get that. So, and there's no secrecy. There's no exploitation. Yeah. Uh, we don't have time to talk about it. I just want to note that like I, what I'm picking up from you a lot ethically is like autonomy is the main thing. People need to have autonomous free choice and non-coercion. And then mostly everything goes after that. And so some people might have a different view of ethics. Yeah, right. Or even sexual ethics, but it's worth noting. Uh, next question or uh, comment. I grew up strongly believing that masturbation was a sin in every single situation. But I had to recognize that it might have helped me to wait until marriage to have sex with my partner. This lack of touch and sensuality seems to build the need for it. The lack builds the need. I would love to hear biblical arguments, or I'm going to say any arguments you have about this topic. So masturbation really isn't addressed in the Bible at all. There's the guy spilling his seed, but that's about reproduction. Right. And masturbation also isn't about intimacy. Your body will begin to want to move through its arousal cycle somewhere between 10 and 13. And we don't marry. I think the average age for boys is like 27 now. Um, It's lower in the evangelical uh, community. And people are marrying sooner in the evangelical community, in part because of this sense that I need to get married. I need to have sex. I need to start having sex. The divorce rate is higher in the evangelical community because of that. It's much higher prior to the age of 30. So um, Mm. it's like 60% prior to 24 and younger. Wow. Yeah. So uh, masturbation just helps you move through your arousal cycle. It Mm. downloads oxytocin, uh, prolactin, other kinds of things that are going to cause you to relax. And that's its value. You're still going to be lonely. You're still going to want connection and pleasure with another human who sees, knows, loves, and accepts you. This is how we are wired. Next one. Is there a positive way to teach abstinence only, or did any sort of good come from that movement? Is there a way to say, it's still a great thing to wait until you're married, but you're not dirty or broken if you didn't? Ultimately, is there a way to redeem the purity movement, or do we need to simply abandon it? I think we need to abandon it because, because one, it wasn't a purity movement. It was driven by consumerism. It was a lie in the way that it was presented to the people because it was about power and control underneath the sheets. We know from 
research and statistics, the best way to be protective of our kids is to provide the education, help them know through the education why it's worth waiting until they're mature, until they're with somebody who can be honoring and loving to them, until they have the maturity to be honoring and loving to an other, um, what actually good sexual relationships and relationships actually look like what intimacy into me see what it actually looks like and how you equip yourself to be able to do that. And that takes time. If you give your kids that kind of information, they all often wait much longer. Now, they may not wait to marriage, but they're much more likely to wait until they are older and in a really loving relationship. Mm, Yeah. Next one. This is about body shame. Did the purity movement do anything unique or particularly damaging related to body shame? Patriarchy, fashion, and advertising have all done plenty to contribute to body shame. But how did purity culture align with or deviate from general culture in respect to beauty standards and body shame? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that I've spent much time really thinking about that. I I do think in some places in the United States, there was some more focus on how women look. Um, yeah, think about anytime I'm in Texas, for instance, exactly. I noticed, and I, and I'm aware of how attracted I am to that at some level that it's like, this is for you, sir. Yes. Thank exactly. you. I'll take it. Yes. You know, exactly. That sense of women are objects for your pleasure then plays into what culture has also been saying. It's it's this subtle punctuation of what women should look like. So women get this sense that they are the damaged ones. I've heard from young girls like, I'm the damaged one, much more than from guys. I'm mm. the damaged one. I'm the one that's not good enough. But then they're also getting the, I've got to go get waxed. And I've, I mean, it's just, it's a combo thing. If it's possible to convince conservative Christians of the damage that purity culture has caused, what new approach could they adopt? Could they continue to hold to the ideal of sex inside of marriage while being convinced that abstinence-only sex education doesn't work? Basically, is there a middle ground between purity culture and, say, where you have come? People who are never going to say uh, autonomously chosen sex work is okay, but what, what's in between that? And is there a model for that? I would hope so. I mean, that's, I feel like that's what I'm shooting for. And that is, let's take seriously what the research has said. Let's look at what's working in other cultures where, when we provide the education within the context that God has pre- given this to us and prepared us um, with this information, that when you provide this education for kids, and you help them see what they need with regard to maturity and you equip them that they will often wait. Now, you can say, I would prefer you wait. This is why I would prefer you wait, yada, yada, yada. If you choose not to wait, God's not pulling away from you. I'm not pulling away from you. 
I would love for you to see me as a resource to help you along the way. So you're remaining connected to your child throughout it. Yeah. Yeah. I think what happens so often is when parents lay down a law and say, this is what it has to be. What happens is the kids go underground and then they're no longer a resource for their child. And this has been my experience with our four kids. They're going to lean on you. They're going to come and keep talking to you. This uh, this guy's question is he's a little bit devil's advocate here, and I I know from chatting with him that his view of sexuality is really tied to reproduction. So it's it's a sort of a Catholic kind of a view. And his question is why is it that our primary and secondary sexual characteristics have to do with reproduction? I think what he's getting at is like, are we if we're thinking of sex as for pleasure and connection, like isn't it mostly for reproduction? Are we going against sort of the way that God designed things to go down this, this sort of line of thinking. I I would say, no, (laughs) I would say all the parts of us are wonderful and they're there for very specific purposes. And I don't think we need to put them in a hierarchy. It's kind of hard to argue that the clitoris is there for reproduction also. It's yeah, it's not there for reproduction. You could certainly get plenty of reproduction without it. Yes, you could. Yes. <laughs> maybe, and, not, uh, maybe not on an evolutionary paradigm. I'm not sure. But. When you study the body the way that I've studied it, it just becomes more and more fascinating and remarkable to me. And I think I become more and more in awe of God's design of our bodies. We're still learning things about the clitoris. In part because we haven't studied women well. <laughs> right. But I just think God is amazing. Last one. Is there any research or statistics about men who experience purity culture that shows degraded marital experiences, for instance, divorce, sex addiction, deprived issues with intimacy, lack of self-value and the like? No, not that I know of. Someone should do that research. Yes, we are just beginning to do this research. In fact, like I was saying about the uh, operational definition of sexual shame, when Noelle Clark did that research, She originally came to me saying, I've been following your work. I want to do research on religious sexual shame. There wasn't anything on sexual Mm. shame. So we are infants. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking at this. Well, how about that conversation? Do you have anything... uh, (laughs) to think about that you haven't thought about before if you don't then I don't know what your life is like that it could be so different from my own but as promised now we have the question from Tim the patron question we field these questions on the Facebook group the Facebook group is for patrons of the show to become a patron patreon.com slash Dan Coke or you have permission pod.com click become a patron the question was what is the gospel And how do you, quote, evangelize? Despite my cold, my own answer is going to be kind of long. It is a four-parter, and it is organized around creation, incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. But I think that I should start off by saying there is a simplistic version of the gospel, which I was sometimes taught growing up. I say sometimes because there were plenty of adult Christians in my life who both taught and were examples themselves of a far more robust vision of the gospel. 
But the simple version went something like this, and I bet you might recognize it. God created man without sin. Adam sinned. Once Adam sinned, no human could be in the presence of God because of God's holiness. Jesus' death and resurrection made it such that some sin can indeed be removed, such that God can be in the presence of those people again. And this happens through acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Once Jesus is accepted, then all of your sins are no longer counted against you, or in some sense they are actually removed, such that you can now be in God's presence once you die on earth. Now, by the way, there were all kinds of mixed metaphors for how this was supposed to happen, which we covered back in episode six on atonement theories with Bonnie Christian. Uh, If people do not accept Christ as their savior, then their sin will continue to contaminate them in such a way that they cannot be in God's presence once they die on earth. And therefore, they will go to hell instead of heaven. Given this basic understanding, it made sense that the most important thing you could possibly do was to evangelize, to tell people the, quote, good news, that they could be saved from hell through this simple act of Jesus' acceptance. And by the way, if that basic story is true, that you can avoid an eternity of hellfire simply by praying a prayer and meaning it at least for as long as you are praying it, then that is indeed the most incredible news ever. So I get the allure of that basic story. And there's a lot about this model that I think is still powerful and true. For instance, I think it does a good job of emphasizing the sacrificial nature of Jesus's life. But as a whole, I think it is way oversimplified and it misses out on so much of the Christian story and worldview, not least almost every single thing Jesus ever said or did other than dying and rising again. It's weird that the most distilled version of what it means to be a Christian could never once include a single teaching of Jesus, a rabbi who collected disciples who literally followed him around and tried to live like him, and who said just before ascending to heaven, go and make more disciples, similar to the disciples that were already around, I would imagine. Uh, And of course, I have problems with the eternal hell part, but we're not going to linger there. We're not going to linger on deconstruction. We're going to some reconstruction here. So my own answer of what is the gospel, creation, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. Here's how I currently think of it. Creation. The good news is that God brought the entire universe into being and is present to all creation at every moment. God is constantly, always, and everywhere available to us. The God who created the Milky Way loves you. The God who brought into being the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall, the largest known supercluster of stars, whose light takes 10 billion years to travel from one end of it to the other, that God loves me. The God who brought color into existence and eyes to notice the variations in shade, ears to hear music, that God loves us. This is the first and maybe the most important part of the gospel on which everything else depends and hinges. You can imagine a very different world than that. It could have been that whatever being created the universe did not actually love us 
or care about us much at all, but our God does. Probably the most widespread evidence for this first element of the good news is the experience of a mysterious, all-encompassing, loving presence in prayer, in nature, or elsewhere, experienced by faithful people over all time and all cultures. Now, at this point, as you might be picking up on, we're not really at Christianity yet, but we're at a point pretty much agreed upon in world religions. At the beating center of everything is love or kindness or something like that. That's fine, because we're only at creation. Next, we get to incarnation. Here we start to see something specifically Christian forming. God became man in Jesus Christ in some mysterious way that only started to become clear to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. God becoming man means that God knows what we go through. God experiences what we experience. I actually increasingly believe, as I hinted at earlier, that God is present everywhere and at all times in the universe. The episode I did on panentheism with Philip Clayton explains that view fairly well. And these days, something like that makes the most sense to me. But as a Christian, this idea that God is in everything comes historically and theologically from the idea that God was here in Jesus, particularly on the earth, experiencing the same temptations and joys that human beings experience. So this is part two of the good news. God is with us. God knows what it is like to be us. So that's creation, incarnation, now crucifixion. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann's great work is called The Crucified God, which I think is a good phrase to sum up this section. Ours is a God who willingly takes on suffering. Our God is a God who suffers. God does not float above or outside the pain of the world. God enters into that pain bears that pain in God's own self. This is most clearly shown in the willingness of Jesus to go to the cross. There are a lot of ways of thinking about what exactly happened with Christ's death and sin and all that. Again, episode six on atonement theories. My point here is just that God willingly suffers. God says, I will take punishment. I will take an unjust execution. There has never been a person more innocent of his or her suffering than was God himself in the person of Jesus on the cross. So the good news here is that as you suffer, so does God. God knows real suffering. One little note about this, this also provides justification for the virtue of humility. Uh, The infinite coming down, becoming finite, and even being willing to be killed by finite creatures. That is the ultimate example of humility. Finally, resurrection. This is the part I wish I had as much confidence in day by day, but I'll admit that it is the hardest to believe sometimes. But we do confess that Christ was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the down payment on God's eventual wiping away of every tear of a violence-free future state in which no one is exploited, in which everyone's dignity is recognized. It seems kind of obvious to me that this existence will look very little like what we know of the universe today, because that kind of thing is just not possible in this finite world of matter and energy. But this is the great Christian hope. And this hope is the final part of the good news. 
all will be well and all manner of things will be well. So to summarize the good news from these four aspects, creation, incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, the almighty creator God loves you. God has made our existence sacred by joining it in Jesus Christ. God has made suffering mean something by absorbing that suffering on the cross, and God will redeem all suffering in the end. Now, there was a second part to Tim's question, which is, how do I evangelize? Well, I do think that personally, I quote, preach the gospel, unquote, using words on this podcast almost every week, although less directly, of course, than I did just now, and actually really enjoyed this opportunity to lay that out much more clearly than normal, than is generally called for, given the conversation. And so thank you, Tim, for that. But the question that we should ask is, if that's the good news, how exactly do we let people know this good news? And I think the most obvious answer is by doing what Jesus said, love God with our whole selves and love our neighbor as ourselves. I tend to only really preach to someone that is directly explain these beliefs if they've asked me some question in particular. It does come up sometimes because people know that I like this stuff or they know about the podcast or, you know, a friend's told them they could chat with me about it. Um, And I know that I will preach what I just said here very explicitly to my own children someday, which I think is different than, you know, conversations that are more public or work related or something like that. Honestly, I think there is a lot of evidence to the contrary of the story that I just told. And I don't blame people if they don't see things the way that I just described them. Plenty of people feel that the creator God certainly doesn't have anything like love for them, or that God is not down in the muck with us, that shit is just randomly happening. There's no justice in the world. Suffering is ultimately meaningless, except maybe whatever meaning you can create for yourself. And certainly it often does seem that God has no plan whatsoever to make anything better in the end. If someone believes that, why do they believe it? Probably their experience, what they know of world history, perhaps their own despair they struggle with. There are as many answers to that question as there are people. But I have days myself where what I just said more accurately describes my beliefs about the world than the gospel I just preached three minutes ago. As Trip Fuller from Homebrewed Christianity says, we are believing skeptics. We believe, but we are also skeptical because there just are a lot of problems in this world. So I think the best way to argue for the gospel to others, but maybe more importantly to argue for it to myself, is to instantiate it, to become it. Obviously, I don't do as good a job of this as I'd like. Uh, But I am, after all, a Christian, so I believe in the sinfulness of human nature, and I'm no exception to that. But if I can get myself to do it, I would spend more time doing what I call kingdom work, tutoring, helping the poor and the elderly, advocating for the homeless and the refugees, clothing the naked, spending time with people who have few friends or family, all this stuff. This is how we show people what happens when you have Christian hope. And this is how we show ourselves what our world might look like if we lived as if the gospel were true. So I guess it kind of is that preach the gospel always when necessary, use words approach, which is a quote that is apocryphally attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. 
but I'm also clearly more than happy to use a lot of words at the drop of a hat. Uh, you might also be wondering, though, do I personally try and convince strangers to accept Christ? I do not try and do that. I think that there is plenty of evidence that that does more harm than good in the end. Of course, God can use even our mistakes to do good things, but I'm no longer convinced by the line, well, I've heard some people come to Christ through street preachers. I'm sure that's true, but the cost-benefit analysis to me looks really bad, and clearly it seems there are better ways to show people the truth of the gospel. I want to say thanks, Tim, for this question. It was really nourishing to have to put it down in words uh, in a way that I actually don't think I've ever done quite like this before. So thank you for that question. And now we wrap up the episode. Uh, it seems so long ago that we were talking about sex toys and uh, masturbation, but we were. So uh, a huge thanks to Scott Sanjemi for editing this conversation with Tina. Huge help. Um, there is also an episode on purity culture that I really enjoyed from the Bible for Normal People podcast. I am putting that in the show notes. It's just kind of another take, uh, a different woman who did some different kinds of research, um, and I found it helpful. It's just kind of like another angle. So there's a link to that. There is a link to that definition of sexual shame, that clinical definition that Tina uh, gave us on the air. There is a link to the vow of Ona, that beautiful uh, Jewish text about sexuality that that, um, Tina was reading some of. So you can look at that whole thing and there's a uh, it's it's a blog post that she wrote so she explained some of it there there is a link to sex mom and god another book that came up uh, there is a, there's a link to girls and sex navigating the complicated new landscape another book that came up um, there's also one little uh, correction uh, something that Tina said she said that 80% of what they taught in abstinence-only education was false. That's how I understood her. I looked it up. It is true. 80% of abstinence-only curricula contained serious erroneous information. That doesn't mean that four out of five claims were lies, but that's still a really bad number. This is being taught in public schools. Um, I just wanted to make sure that, that was understood. Because when I first heard her say that, I was like, that seems impossible. It is true. It's just not of the claim. It's the not of all the curricula. Um, and let's see. I got a link to Tina's website. Uh, I have a link to her thankgodforsex.org and her Northwest Institute on Intimacy, for those of you up here, and a link to her Instagram and Twitter. So now it's just the normal stuff I say at the end. Join the Patreon, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com, click become a patron. Uh, I just love it, man. I interact with people on that Facebook group basically every day. I'm getting great questions for guests. I'm getting great questions for the Q&A. And uh, there's also those two bonus episodes. I know this is the third ad in a row for the Bazan thing. There's another one coming in a few days for patrons talking about eschatology with uh, Jack Holloway and email me you have permission podcast at gmail.com about anything really I want to know what you're going through what you're thinking about 
Um, if you have ever shared these with someone, these episodes, and had a conversation about that, I'd love to know how that went. That's what they're designed to be. Please do share them. Um, I feel like I've just been talking for a long time here, so I'm going to stop. I will see you guys next week. I don't know what episode is next, but a couple things to look forward to are an episode on postmodern Christianity and another episode on female ordination, ordaining women as pastors, and another one upcoming about going to therapy. Okay, I'm going to give my throat a break and sign off. <laughs>